Brad so going to be here to do the CDBG thing? Or is he on? And Brad's online. Brad's online. He's online, okay. Oh, I see him now. <laughs> All right. Really don't need this. This thing. Put that over there. Really, I'm not going to need that. All right. All right, well, it is 11.01, .01, so I think we'll get started. Uh, this is the September 12th, 2022 Affordable Housing Advisory Board meeting. Um, and I'm going to open it up and have Leah read the public notice. We'll go from there. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and good morning, everyone. I have a few housekeeping that housekeeping items for this hybrid meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on City's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you're not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. You'll still be able to hear the meeting. When you're participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. A few notes on public comment. When the chair calls for public comment, individuals attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise your hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you're called on. Individuals will be called on in the order they appear on the host meeting screen. Please state your name before speaking. All comments will be limited to three minutes. And I'll no, uh, now turn the meeting back to Mr. Sukup. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Um, I think the first thing we'll do is take a roll and establish a quorum. And uh, so I'm going to take roll and just respond. And I'll, this is the order that I will take roll every time we take a vote today. So just kind of note who you're behind. Uh, Rebecca Buford. Here. Sarah Waters. Here. Christina Gentry. Oh, here. Thomas Allen. Here. Erica Zimmerman. Here. Okay. Dana Ortiz. Here. Shannon Ori. Here. Okay. Uh, Ron Gacious. Present. Edith Guffey. Here. Thomas Howe. Here. Uh, Monty Sokup. Here. Trent Santee. Here. Uh, Shannon Reed. Here. And that is it. So it looks like we have everyone present uh, that is on the board. That's a that's great. Thank you, everybody. Uh, the next item is public comment, and I believe there uh, 
Leah, will you be reading the opening thing for public comment? Oh, I already did. Oh, you did? I'm sorry. I missed that. <laughs> it's so open. I will open the floor at this point for uh, public comment. Anyone? Does anyone in the room? Do you have general public comment or for a, okay. All right, with seeing none and none online, we'll close public comment and we'll move into item uh, agenda item B, which is approve the minutes and consider approval of the many minutes for the July 11th uh, meeting. So I open the floor to either comment on those minutes or a motion to approve. <laughs> This is uh, Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commissioner. I um, was absent, which there's some conflicting um, notes in in here. Um, so I'm noted as both present and absent for a couple votes, and also I voted nay on something which I didn't because I wasn't there. So um, I can point all of those out specifically, or just maybe direct staff to. Um, review those and update. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. I'm sorry about that, Commissioner Reed. Um, I had noticed that when I did the draft and thought that I had corrected it for the public, but um, it doesn't look like the um, updates were saved and published. So I apologize. I do need to get that corrected. No need to apologize to me. That's okay. Um, I um, wonder if you need a motion to defer um, or just we'll see it on our next month's agenda instead. Um, a motion to defer may be beneficial just for the record. Well, or... I'm happy to do that. I'm, I was hesitating because I was like, I wasn't present, but I don't think it really matters. Uh, <laughs> so, here, I'll go ahead. <laughs> I'm out on all motion to defer. Okay, so we have a motion on. We have a motion on the floor. Second, uh, Rebecca Buford, tenants to homeowner, second. And a second. Is there any discussion? Does everybody understand that there were some corrections submitted that didn't quite get into the record? So we're going to defer this until next month to vote on it after the corrections have been made and posted. Any other comments? Um, Mr. Chairman, Ron yeah. Gacious, Chamber Representative. As as um, as Chairman, I think you can just pull something off the agenda and hold it till next month. You don't, you don't need a vote of the AHAB members to do that. All right, I'm gonna look to staff to confirm that. Can I just pull it from the agenda? Given that it's an item that's on, I would recommend pulling it and having a motion to defer just for the continuity of the record, given okay. the hybrid meeting we're in. Right. And we have a motion on the table already. So I'm going to, we're just going to go ahead and take the roll and vote on this motion. Next time, maybe I'll be smarter and we'll get it off before we have a motion on the floor. So uh, I'm going to call a roll. Rebecca? Buford? Yes. Sarah Waters? Yes. Christina Gentry? Yes. Thomas Allen. Yes. Erica Zimmerman. Yes. Dana Ortiz. Yes. Shannon Aury. Yes. Ron Gacious. Yes. Edith Guffey. 
Yes. Thomas Howe. Yes. Monty Sokup. Yes. Trent. Yes. Fenty. Uh, Shannon Reed. Yes. Okay, motion passes 13-0, so we will defer uh, acting on the, or accepting the board minutes until next month. So that pulls us down to regular agenda items. Uh, so we have the uh, fall public hearing for the 2021 Community Development Block Grant and Home Investment Partnership Program Consolidated Annual Performance and Evaluation Report. Um, I believe that Brad Carr is on and is going to uh, present this. I am. Hi. Uh, good morning, board members. Um, I am Brad Carr, and I am the Community Development Analyst. And we would like to thank you today for allowing us to present to the public the 2021 CAPER report, which is the Consolidated Annual Performance and Evaluation Report. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Um, this is a report required by HUD uh, that details the city's performance in implementation of the Community Development Block Grant and the Home Investment Partnerships Program, and especially those funded activities that were completed during the 2021 program year. Um, 2021 was the fourth year of our five-year consolidated plan, uh, which covers the program years from 2018 to 2022. This CAPER report was released to the public on September 8th, 2022, and it will have a 30-day public comment period until October 9th, 2022. Uh, all public comments received from the, uh, during that comment period will be included in the report when we do submit it to HUD. Um, along with presenting the report today, uh, we'd like to provide an open forum for discussion of the Community Development Block Grant and Home Programs and provide an opportunity to any interested parties to express and discuss their opinions about housing and community development needs, especially the needs of our low and moderate income citizens. Um, I know you do have a lengthy agenda today, so I'm just gonna highlight on a few of the sections in, that are contained in the report. Um, it does have a goals and outcomes section, uh, which not only contains information on the expected program year, in the actual program year results for the 2021 year, but it also contains uh, a summary of up to date through the four years that we have completed. Um, and so it lists each of the programs that we do fund, the amount that we funded it for for the 2022 year, and uh, depending on what type of program it was, um, either how many household units were uh, assisted with the funds, or um, even down to the persons assisted or some of our direct client service activities. There's also a section on uh, the racial and ethnic composition of the families that were assisted with the funds in the 2021 year. And we also have a uh, section on affordable housing that um, I think you guys will find uh, interesting since uh, that's what we're here, your board is here for today. So uh, Leah did help provide us with this uh, section and so we were Thank her greatly for that. Uh, there's also a section on um, homeless needs in our community and specific objectives for reducing and ending homelessness. Um, and then uh, there are some additional resources that are provided just for the public um, information. We do have a, our citizens participation plan, um, some of our housing strategies and uh, vision charts that we use, 
Um, there's also a section detailing the uh, low and moderate census tracts and block groups for, that are contained within the city of Lawrence. Um, also attached is your 2021 annual report and also some uh, financial summer reports uh, from HUD. So um, now, Mr. Chair, uh, if procedurally you could open the public hearing and staff will be available to accept any comments and, and to answer any questions from the public. All right, thank you, Brad. At this time, we would open the public hearing for the 2021 Consolidated Annual Performance and Evaluation Report. Are there any public comments? I see none here in the chamber. Are there any online? I don't see any. Okay, then at this time, we will close the public hearing for the 2021 CAPER. I think that concludes, unless Brad has additional comments, I think that concludes this action item. Nope, I, nothing else additionally. Thank you, uh, board members, for allowing us to present this today. All right. Thank you, Brad. Uh, agenda item number two, review the 2023 Affordable Housing Trust Fund timeline and application review process. Um, this time, I'm going to turn that over to Leah to talk about uh, the grant funding matrix and the timeline. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. I am going to go over a few process documents with the advisory board. Um, let's see. Let me figure out how to share my screen real quick. Um, okay. Um, thank you for bearing with me with all of this fun technology. Oh, everybody, that's up. Okay. Um, so first, I just wanted to review the 2023 Affordable Housing Trust Fund, uh, uh, Trust Fund timeline uh, for this round of funding. Um, in terms of the um, naming of the grant years for consistency, just want to remind everybody that when we say 2020 three trust fund. Um, the applications are accepted and reviewed in 2022. The recommendations are made in 2022, but the con the agreements are signed in 2023 and the awards are made in 2023. So that's what we're looking at. Um, there's been some confusion about that. Um, so right now we are almost um, to the application deadline. Um, once I receive all of the applications, then I will compile the matrix that I will show you in just a moment um, and send those to the Affordable Housing Advisory Board via email. Um, I will send you the review matrix um, as well as all the applications and the scorecard. And you will have until October 10th. Um, I'm sorry, you'll have until November 4th to return those to me via email. 
On October 10th, our next meeting, all applicants will be asked to come to the AHAB meeting to provide a five-minute presentation that can happen via Zoom or they can attend uh, in person. Um, each applicant will have up to 15 minutes for their presentation. Um, and then after the presentations are over, then the advisory board will have an opportunity to have the first sort of deliberation about the applications, ask any questions of the applicants, discuss the merits of the applications with each other. And then after that initial discussion, we'll then still have um, some time to go back on your own and review the applications and provide your own individual scores. Your individual scores are due to me via the spreadsheet that um, I'm going to send you and show in just a moment on November 4th. That will allow me time to compile all of the scores and recommendations so that on our November 14th meeting, the AHAB can come together and provide those final recommendations to the City Commission on Funding. Um, what you will be provided is an average score of all the members' recommendation just to give a place to start with. The City Commission then should um, approve funding on December 6th, the agreement signed throughout December, and then the funding year will begin January 1st. I will now go over the... Mr. Chair and Leah, I apologize, but you do have an incorrect date on, this is Sarah Waters with KU, um, on that timeline, you did have December with the 2023 here, so you may want to make that adjustment if that's published somewhere else. Thank you. I still had. Yeah, I understood. I just wanted to point that oh, out. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Um... So here is the review matrix. Um, some of you have done this process before and for a couple of you, this is brand new. So I am gonna go over um, each of the sheets. So this year we have two different um, matrices depending on the type of projects. When you receive this spreadsheet for me, you will have each one of these tabs will be completed with an applicant information. So just for by way of example, I've filled out two of the spreadsheets to go over with you to see what it'll look like um, when you receive it. So I will go ahead and fill in the applicant name, the project name and type, and the amount that's requested. All of these items here will be um, left blank for you to fill in. So goal alignment, possible score, um, you will fill in, you know, whatever you are, uh, whatever your score is. So I'm just going to put numbers in here. And we've already discussed the actual, actual matrix, so I wasn't going to go over that. This is really just a technical instruction. So then you can see at the bottom, it provides a final score and uh, the score percentage. And again, that's so that we can just have some, um, just some baseline information to work with um, as benchmarks. Then, uh, so you will fill that out. You'll put any comments and recommendations in this text box, and then you'll put if you recommend for funding, yes, no, or maybe. 
Um, at the bottom will be all the key project elements. And again, this will be completed when you receive it. Um, so I'll go through the application and put in if they meet all the funding, uh, if they meet all the requirements for funding eligibility, if they've submitted a complete application, the leverage ratio, the fees percentage, the AMI, distance to transit, all of those things that we want to look at um, and analyze for the funding recommendations. Um, so that's that one. You can see that this is for the acquisition and um, affordable housing and construction of housing. This is for housing support services, rehab and modification. It's the same thing. So you'll just go through the things will be filled out. You know, um, when you get it, you'll fill this in. Oops, I went too far. Um, you'll make a recommendation for funding and there. Now then all of these spreadsheets with the individual applications will feed into this spreadsheet. So you can see um, that your score gets fed into this uh, column here. The request is here. And then you'll finally need to go over and put your recommended funding amount. So if you're recommending, you know, they get 300, you'll just put that in, um, put that in. It'll automatically calculate um, how much you have awarded and how much is available uh, for you to still recommend for awards. And they are due November uh, 4th again. Um, one final note is that we, um, the budget, city budget resolution was just passed last week. And so this is the first opportunity we have to have like a solid number of how much we'll have to allocate for the trust fund for this 2023 round. And we'll have, um, one uh, six six uh, one million six hundred thousand sixty one to work with. Any questions um, about the process, about the applications, or what's expected? All right, seeing no questions. Thank you, Leah, for that report and the update on the uh, modifications to the matrix and timeline. Um, we'll move on to item number three, review the second quarter 2022 Affordable Housing Trust Fund grantee report. And uh, again, I believe this is a, uh, I think Leah is going to be presenting this. Is that correct? Yeah, um, if I can find. Sorry, it takes so freaking long to share a screen. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> Here are the quarter two reports. <clears throat> this is just a summary of which uh, um, each of the grantees reports for the second quarter. So just as a reminder, all affordable housing trust fund grantees do have to submit quarterly and annual reports until the project is completed or the funds are expended. Um, you can see um, the Housing Stabilization Collaborative in quarter two. Um, uh, Gabby is actually here with us today. Hi, Gabby. But she provided um, a pretty thorough um, outline of their activities during the quarter, um, what the need is and what they, uh, who they've been serving. Um, Want to point out that they have uh, started a pilot mediation program uh, for tenant landlord mediation. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, and they've served 65 people in this quarter. 
can see that Independence Inc. Um, has served three households, uh, have received accessibility modifications during the quarter. I'm not going to read through all of the reports because you all are quite adept at doing that. But if you have any questions, I'm happy to take them or um, and any of the applicants here might be able to answer questions as well. All right. Monty Sokup Chair, uh, I got a question for Erica on the Habitat for Humanity note that you're having trouble finding contractors. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. We're having difficulty finding insured contractors to be able to do the work. We, um, we have a lot of people check in with us and say that they're willing to help. Um, but because of um, our insurance and different policies, we have to have them insured. Um, and it's Everyone seems to have a lot of work right now, which is great, but um, we have a very large wait list just trying to get contractors to uh, do some of the work that is needed. This is Shannon Reed, um, Douglas County Commission. I'm glad you brought that up, Monty, because I was also curious about it. So Erica, I wonder, does it also require certain um, licensing standards? Um, so it, it depends on the project. So um, um, so roofing, let me, I'll use that as an example of what we've had luck with. So roofing, we've had great luck because we, we have some really good uh, community partners in Alpha Roofing. Um, and so that is a licensing need, but they hold that currently because they're um, a company. What we're finding is the independent individual contractors that we're struggling with to do some of the other things like rails and handrails and those types of things. Um, so there are licensing um, requirements, but it's the insurance that that seems to be the biggest block. So we are currently as an organization strategizing and raising funds to hire an in-house contractor that would we would have another general contractor on staff. But again, um, that's taking a little bit longer than we had anticipated or would like. And so in the meantime, we are trying to find independent contractors, um, but they're all really busy and um, not all of them are insured, so. Thanks for that. It makes me curious if I don't pretend to know anything. Certainly there are other board members here who probably know a lot more about insurance for contractors, but wondering if there's any resources through Peasley Tech or the Chamber for support with that. And I just thought I'd say that out loud. It's probably something you're talking about and strategizing around also. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a couple months ago, Trent had mentioned a... Um, and if I get this incorrect, Trent, please help me, but um, had mentioned a temporary contractor's either license or certification. And I believe um, that was looked into through, Leah, can you remind me? I'm sorry, I'm forgetting all the details, but I believe we looked into that with the help of um, Leah and the city. And that wasn't something that was possible at that time, but that's something we're still also kind of exploring to see if there's a temporary insurance, even with our own insurance company or a temporary kind of contract licensing um, partnership that we could do as well. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, I did look into licensing for like a general handyman license and that didn't seem feasible, but I did not look into insurance for unlicensed contractors or handymen. So that might still be a possibility. 
Yes, thank you for that clarification, Leah. I had gotten those details myself. So. As Monte Sokup Chair, I just one idea that I don't know maybe if you've explored, but maybe thinking about some of the larger general contractors in town that you could work with them to say, look, when you have people that you are in between jobs or whatever, you know, I have this log of work and just kind of keep them on notice where, you know, they know when they need to keep somebody busy for three days, they have somewhere to go and they have a, you know, the kind of job that they could probably accomplish, maybe accomplish in three days. So just something like that for some of the bigger, cause they would be licensed and insured, you know, just through the normal process of business and, you know, Summer is probably not going to happen a lot, but maybe over the winter, you have some people that, you know, are in between jobs and whatnot and could have some time. So, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. We have a couple of partners that we've reached out mm -hmm. to, but definitely there are more that, um, and you're right. I didn't even think about maybe with weather changing a little bit, that might release some of the yeah. um, pressure that they're seeing as well. Yeah, sometimes that flexibility and schedule is what they need. It fills a gap for them, which could fill a gap for you. So, all right. Thanks. Any other uh, questions or comments on the quarter, second quarter report? All right. Seeing none, I'm going to move us along. Chair. Oh, yeah. Uh, Edith had her hand up. Oh, I missed that. I'm sorry, Edith. That's okay. I, You're I a little was just tiny square. Over. <laughs> I was just wondering. I, I assume, Erica, that it's um, uh, your limited to Douglas County as far as contractors actually yeah. not necessarily no um but that's something we haven't per we haven't pursued looking outside of Douglas County um so because I was wondering about Kansas City and uh, Topeka especially for minority contractors mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. We can definitely look outside of Douglas County. Thank you. All right. It's Monty Sokup Chair. Thank you. Uh, any other questions or comments? Okay. Now we'll move on to item four. Uh, receive the presentation on updates to the City of Lawrence Chapter 10 and Article 13, which includes protection from housing discrimination based on source of income, and consider a letter of support to the City Commission from the Affordable Housing Advisory Board. So I believe uh, we have... Um, Leah, are you going to yeah this conversation off? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, just as some um, background context, as the advisory board may recall, um, the discussion around um, source of income discrimination as a barrier to um, affordable housing and stable housing in our community started in the AHAB um, in um, late 2020. 
Um, the that discussion um, was on the table um, in AHAB meetings several times, um, where members discussed the barriers that voucher holders are experiencing in our community and obtaining housing. We've talked about um, the declining number of landlords in our community that are accepting vouchers, and we've discussed um, how that um, creates, unfortunately, a pathway into homelessness when we don't have enough um, um, housing stock for people to live into, uh, to move into, and uh, that a barrier is landlords not accepting vouchers. And eventually the AHAB um, referred this to the Human Relations Committee um, as a more appropriate commission to look at this. Um, and they have been, uh, they formed a work group and have been working on updates um, which uh, the chair, Katie Barnett, is here to provide a presentation on what those updates are and provide more information about this uh, source of income non-discrimination. So Katie, thank you so much for being here and you should be able to share your screen. Good morning. Thank you all so much for having me. Um, I feel a bit out of my element. Um, you all, everything I'm gonna talk about today uh, quickly is something that you all are the experts in. So um, I obviously feel like I'm preaching to the choir. Um, so I might move through some of my slides quickly. Um, if you all have any questions, please feel free to interrupt me or stop me. Um, as we go, uh, but thank you so much. Um, I will share my screen now, put together my slideshow. Oops, hold on one second, sorry. I don't know why this is. One second. Here we go. I think it was still on my other screen. Here we go. Okay. Sorry, I had my other screen plugged in. You'd think after so many years of this Zoom stuff, I'd have it down by now. Um, so we're working on this Article 13 change in conjunction with Chapter 10. Why we're working on it, um, the City Commission and Community urged a refocus of the Human Relations Commission, you know, our Civil Rights Division um, of the City uh, community aspect of the city. Um, we're considering changing our name to better convey the purpose and the mission of the Human Relations Commission um, and really updating the ordinance to reflect the needs of the community, adding in multiple protected classes, um, and then also to review and update the complaint procedure. But how does Article 13, the long-term rental uh, language, work into this? Well, certainly if we are going to consider a source of income language, then uh, some of that just simply uh, legal process-wise works over into Article 13. 
We also wanted to take a real holistic approach um, based on the data and the community needs. Um, and of course, this falls under the Human Relations Commission um, because as you all know, refusing housing choice vouchers disproportionately affects black, indigenous and people of color in our community. Um, so it, it keeps our community segregated. Um, and if we are truly going to have a non-discrimination ordinance that is fair, um, then we have to consider source of income and that would naturally fall under uh, the Human Relations Commission in Chapter 10. And that's where we find it in other cities as well. Um, so I just want to say thank you to the research team. Several uh, of your organizations were represented on this research team. Um, we also had assistance from the Poverty and Race Research Action Council. Um, I had many meetings um, with other attorneys um, in cities across the country as I worked on revising Chapter 10 and Article 13, along with the City of New York um, and then Kansas Legal Services. So again, totally out of my element. I'm really just kind of trying to be the administrative assistant that gets this done. Um, my law practice does not focus on housing. Um, so I just, I learned a lot and I owe all of this to the incredible work of the research team and that 400 page packet that you all received today. Um, all of that was gathered by um, this wonderful, wonderful group of people. Um, and subject matter experts. So chapter 10, really the only, the only uh, big issue in chapter 10 that has to do with what you all work on um, in housing is the definitions. Um, we added a definition of survivor status, meaning a person who during the preceding 12 months has been in or is in imminent danger of becoming a victim of domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, or stalking. Um, this works in conjunction with section, uh, or it was Senate Bill 78, which was enacted in 2019. Um, it's just a crossover so that um, those survivors are not denied housing based solely on their survivor status. Again, this is in the state statute, but um, as it works out in our city definition, it's something that the, the city code does need to take into consideration. Immigration status, um, there's, you know, obviously a broad interpretation of immigration status, um, but uh, I wanted to say that we want to protect immigration status throughout the city. When it comes to housing, um, any provision that would prohibit discrimination based on immigration status does not apply if there's a federal state or city law that imposes like a citizenship requirement um, for receiving any employment contract benefit or service. So there's kind of an exception there. Um, and then here's the big one for you guys and I'll let it sit here for a second because we're gonna refer to it later on, um, source of income. So the definition was pulled from um, you know, several other cities and states throughout the country. Um, as you all know, I'm sure there are 11 states that have source of income protection. I think there's 33 cities and um, again, a dozen counties that have source of income protection. This language is kind of what the research team found is most appropriate for the city of Lawrence. Um, so it's money derived from any professional occupation, money derived from any contract agreement, loan settlement, court order, annuity, life insurance policy, et cetera. 
Um, many money derived from any benefit or subsidy program, including but not limited to housing assistance program, housing choice vouchers, veterans affairs support, housing tribal or grant tribal grant or vouchers. Um, and you know the list goes on. You all can read it for yourself. Um, and then uh, also any monthly housing assistance assistance administered by any federal tribal, state, or local agency or nonprofit entity. I see there's a um, spelling error there, which I will correct. Um, so that's the language. Um, research points, obviously, um, again, you all know this. I don't really need to go over it, but mobility outcomes are improved um, for families and, and elderly and house populations. Um, there's a perception from property owners that there's an administrative burden or voucher recipients are undesirable tenants with higher potential for damage to property, but the data from Douglas County does not support that. Um, authors in the research, in your research, research packet, um, observe that outcomes could be more enhanced when source of income is considered in tandem with other housing mobility tools and policies. So this is a tool to everything this board is working on, but also there are a few other changes within Article 13 that are tools that would enhance the source of income because what we really talked about, the research team, what we really talked about in the beginning is we can write a source of income ordinance. We can certainly copy over the language from other cities and we can urge the city of Lawrence to adopt it. But when we don't take a holistic approach and we don't take into consideration all of the factors that contribute to people being unhoused in our community, then this isn't gonna work. So I'm not interested in wasting your time or any of our time on this if, if it's just going to be in name only. And so there are a few other, other steps here um, for this board to consider in its support of the packet moving forward. Um, so then how does all this work in chapter 10? Chapter 10 would make it unlawful um, to refuse to sell broker, appraise, assign rent, et cetera. Um, anyone based on the basis of immigration status, survivor status, or source of income. And so I think it's important, this is not just the only paragraph, but for purposes of time today, of course, throughout chapter 10, it's also unlawful to discriminate based on those protected classes for um, marketing, loans, um, you know, housing, et cetera. So this is just kind of a snippet. I think it's always good instead of having a bullet point that you all can see the actual change and what that looks like in the ordinance. Um, so this is in chapter 10, what makes source of income acts um, based on source of income unlawful. Um, so for article 13, um, source of income, again, same, same language here. There, it is just in the definition of Article 13. And then in Article 13, the unlawful act is that no person shall fail to account for any tenant or prospective tenant's entire source of income when considering applying, entering into, or renewing a tenancy. So that is the, the heavy language for you all to consider. Um, enforcement. Uh, we have made a few little changes, and I just do need to say 
This obviously needs to go to the legal department. This is a um, what what the team came up with based on the nationwide research that we did, um, really taking a comprehensive approach to making an effective source of income um, ordinance. However, uh, the city attorney's office needs to weigh in. The city manager's office needs to review this. I'm again, not my law practice area. Um, so there may be some Tech, small technical or procedural changes that need to happen. Um, but it, I really, before we continue to move forward with this, I thought it was really critical to get this board's opinion. Um, it has so much to do with what, what you do for our community, um, both on this board and outside of this board in your professional capacity. And so uh, I, I just really wanted to um, get, get your eyes on it in a formal fashion. Um, so enforcement, rental license issuance and renewal, um, we added if the applicant has violated chapter 10 of the city code of Lawrence or this article such that the planning and development services deems the applicant ineligible for subsequent rental licenses. Um, putting the planning and development services team in charge of um, issuance and renewal um, is what we came up with as the most appropriate agency for enforcement. That may change, um, but right now that's what it says. Katie, um, Katie, yes. So, you know, in my plain understanding, that means if someone an agency that rents houses and applies for a license that's broken that broken that law or whatever code is not going to be eligible for a rental license in Florence. Is that basically what that means? If you if you violate this, you will not be eligible for renewal. Yeah. So I think that that's that's an important language um, analysis, and um, it's the it's not a hard and fast rule. Um, it would be such that planning and development services deems the ap applicant ineligible. So it's not if you violated it, you are ineligible. It's that this, this development, planning and development services has reviewed your application and they found that the violations were either so repetitive or egregious. And we can put language like that in here. Um, I just didn't want to put something like, you know, if someone has violated it, uh, three times in the last 24 months or, you know, some of those like repeat offender language, you know, that mm -hmm. you see in other ordinances. I didn't want to put a real hard and fast rule. I wanted, again, to take a holistic individualized approach to this and say, hey, you know, maybe they don't, maybe someone wasn't there for an inspection. We don't want to say that that's automatically grounds for a denial of a renewal right. um, or something like that. So, so but no, you have, that's not. You have essentially. You've essentially created a correction period, in essence, for somebody to correct a mistake if they've made a mistake and it's correctable, which I think is fair. I mean, I think that's not unreasonable at all. Um, yeah, well, certainly there's a procedural due process in Chapter 10 for someone who's okay. discriminated some, against someone in housing. Um, so they have a whole, a whole, there's a whole process, 14th though. Amendment process for that. Yeah. Okay. okay, good. That's good to know. So. I guess I, I, my, I'm, I'm asking these questions because several months ago we had a presentation where, you know, we, we learned that, you know, 80 or 90% of the rental units in this town are controlled by a very small percentage of people and organizations. So, you know, that this is, 
it's important that we're able to apply this because um, those big players have a lot at stake. You know, I mean, if you could have one player and it could have, you know, 2000 apartments at stake in Lawrence. And so we've got to, you know, it's got to have enough teeth that we can do something with it, but also you can't just, you know, take somebody that has 3000 apartments and go, we're closing you down. You've got to have some kind of, so that's why I was asking. So. Sure. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not comfortable with this language when we, when it comes time to discuss it. Okay. If you all want to make, um, it's just maybe so we can, I guess, keep it moving. If you want to make notes about, um, if you have a direct question, I'm happy to answer it. But if you want to make notes to perhaps changes that you'd like to see, um, I could probably do a better job of um, making notes about what what changes we should look at at the end. Um, okay. So thank you. Yeah, we can do that. Okay. Thanks. Um, so then the other, the other thing that we're seeing um, in cities across the country is applicant screening criteria for, for prospective tenants. Um, HUD and local data supports inclusive or individual screening criteria for prospective tenants. Um, what that means is like a universal rental application. We really see three issues when it comes to rental application denials that um, have really no basis in fact and are keeping our houses community unhoused. That is a source of income discrimination or a denial, rental history or eviction time limit, um, and criminal history. And uh, so the city of Minneapolis has successfully added a universal um, application or uh, individual screening criteria for prospective tenants to its non-discrimination ordinance. And we have added that language in our non-discrimination ordinance and have put together uh, a, an application that is more open-ended um, basically in, uh, asks questions that are more similar to what HUD asks, specifically when it comes to criminal history. So we're not just saying, what, have you ever received a parking ticket? Did you park too long down on mass? Did you do a J turn on mass? We're going to deny you. Um, it talks more about, you know, these violent offenses and being able to deny a tenancy based on more violent crimes instead of um, uh, nonviolent crimes. So again, these are just a few little facts um, that are uh, outlined in the ordinance. Um, of course, as you said, Chairman, 80% of units don't accept housing choice vouchers, and that's one of the barriers to housing that, that is rejected on the application alone. Um, and then, of course, we have the criminal history question. Um, access to housing is one of the key factors to prevent recidivism. Again, I think you all know this. You're familiar with the stats. Um, and, um, you know, one third of all adults in the United States have a criminal history. Let's work on having a better question on the application and that that all applications are treated inclusively and that uh, applicants are treated inclusively um, and that the we have an application that is supported by data and supported by our, you know, U.S. Department of HUD. Um, and then the other, the, the final thing is, of course, uh, eviction and, uh, and credit, sorry, I'm sorry, credit scores. And so 
Credit scores, of course, have many errors on them. Um, this is increasingly um, difficult for people to access housing based on their credit score alone. Um, so that is an issue that is treated more open-endedly in this uh, applicant screening criteria that is uh, more universal and individualized. And so uh, here's the language. There's is the, you know, just a screen cap, and I'm, I will be happy to send you all of this um, in a packet, but we have a residential rental application, um, and then the language for this universal or uniform application is a landlord must either conduct the individualized assessment required um, or apply an inclusive screening criteria that does not reject an applicant for any of the following reasons, and of course it goes through um, you know, nonviolent crimes, um, you know, municipal offenses, et cetera. And again, I'll be happy to send that packet over to you. The final issue to discuss is pet friendly housing. I know it seems like way out of left field for everyone, um, but when we're looking at the numbers, I'm sure you guys have seen, this has been in national news recently and Lawrence is certainly not immune to this. Um, but when we're talking about source of income, having pets is actually a pretty significant barrier to getting housing, especially in Lawrence. 75% um, of renters have pets, um, but only 2% of 108 surveyed rental properties that were multi-unit properties accept pets or, or are pet friendly. Um, what the Lawrence Humane Society has found is that when they start started asking um, a little over five years ago, I think it was eight years ago, the Humane Society found that when they asked why people were surrendering their pets, it was due to landlord issues and um, places not being pet friendly. Uh, the Lawrence Humane Society takes in an average of 800 animals per year, and they're uh, on track to take in over 900 that are surrendered solely due to restrictive pet policies and housing. Um, that equates to about uh, $180,000 to care for these animals that have, are, they already had homes, they just couldn't find housing. Um, last winter and the winter before was especially difficult for people with pets to find um, temporary housing. Lawrence Humane Society assisted 150 people with either pet deposits or temporary boarding so they could seek shelter in the winter for themselves because the community shelter is not pet friendly. So um, if we really are going to consider the research on this and um, have a holistic approach to helping our renters, um, you know, those 75% of people who need housing it would be helpful if rentals were more pet friendly. Um, so the language pulled is from the state of California and the state of Illinois, along with a handful of other cities that have more pet friendly housing ordinances. Um, the language is um, uh, basically if you have a rental license fee, um, if you are restricting the keeping of a pet by a perceived breed, height, or weight, or size, um, the fee shall be increased to $50. So you can have pet restriction. You just have to pay a little bit more for that. 
um, because currently the city is expending a ton of municipal dollars supporting the animal shelter for these uh, restrictive pet policies. Um, and then finally, this is what, again, the state of California, the state of Illinois, and a few states across the country are considering this next legislative session. Um, that no person receiving funding from the city of Lawrence um, for purposes of improving, maintaining, rehabilitating all of a part of a property um, shall refuse to allow a tenant in a unit of 500 square feet or larger, at least one common household pet, which is defined as a dog or cat essentially, um, regardless of breed, height, weight, or size. Um, and then of course, this does not apply to wolf hybrids, service animals, assistance animals, um, dangerous animals, nuisance animals, vicious animals. Um, you know, this whole last paragraph are all the exceptions to it. Um, so, so that is really the universal screening criteria, pet-friendly housing, source of income is what we have identified as the most supportive way to make meaningful change here in Lawrence. So the next steps for this packet is to go back to the Human Relations Commission for review. Um, we need to have continued community outreach and engagement, of course. I know there have been plenty of out outreach and engagement across our community. I know that sometimes it's tough to get people to attend. I know there was something at the, of course, the public library. There was another thing at Rock Chalk Park. Um, really, it's just been um, the research team and, and all the organizations represented here have done a great job of trying to get engagement from our community and property owners. Um, we just probably need to continue that work. Um, it needs to go, of course, as I said, to the city attorney's office for review. Um, we need to have discussions with the city manager for enforcement and a fiscal impact. Um, the fiscal impact is estimated at one full-time employee for enforcement or administrative support if we add source of income language. Um, and uh, then it would ultimately, whatever language we land on, would go to the city commission for consideration. Um, I'll stop my screen share so that we can um, discuss. All right. Uh, thank you, Katie. Um, at this point, I think we turn it over to the board to bring up the points or any points that they had along the way that um, they want to talk further about. Mm -hmm. Anybody have anything? Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ron Gacious, mm -hmm. Chamber Representative, what are we being asked to do today? Well, I think ultimately what uh, we would like to do is submit a letter of support uh, from this board uh, to this to support this uh, proposed changes to the city code. It, this isn't a formal recommendation, but it would be my recommendation that our letter be narrowly confined to the source of income and affordable housing related issues. Uh, some of the other issues that uh, Katie did an excellent job of reviewing mm -hmm. are, I think, outside our scope and I would be uncomfortable with. I think that's a reasonable suggestion. This is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commissioner. Um, mm -hmm. I actually disagree with that. I think that the holistic approach that was taken with all of the very extensive research and work that's been done since we um, asked the this commission to take on the source of income issue makes it so that um, there is real teeth, so to speak, as mentioned before, to the ordinances and the possibility of enforcement. 
And I think that Katie's presentation and, and the packet that we received and how extensive it was really illustrates quite well how, um, how interconnected all of those issues are and, and that it these ordinances address particular barriers that we are seeing in our local community to um, affordable housing and to access to that. And so I really appreciate the approach that um, if we're gonna do this, then we should do it right and we should do it thoroughly because policy change is important and impactful. And, um, you know, when we think about the example of adding language that protects survivor status, um, that is absolutely directly related to affordable housing. And that's why there's state legislation that passed housing protections for survivors in 2019 that this language supports. So it is all connected. Um, and I think that the presentation, in my opinion, did a pretty great job at illustrating um, why all of those things are necessary for a holistic approach to this. Obviously the city commission and the and city legal council is going to have feedback and possible language changes. This is still a, a living document. Certainly it's a draft, um, but I think that in my opinion, it really aligns with Ahab's goals. And we um, have been talking about this for almost two years now. I haven't quite been on this board for two years, but the conversation predated me joining it. Um, so I'm excited to see some movement forward. Mr. Chair. Yeah, go ahead, Thomas. Thomas, hi. Go ahead, Leah. Um, I was going to note that Dana's had our hand up for some time. Oh. Take Dana's, oh. take Dana's question. Okay, uh, Dana, I, I didn't even see you on my screen. So go ahead, Dana. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to Katie and your committee who did a remarkable job in summarizing this. That was an enormous amount of research and I thought it was presented incredibly well. Um, this also represents a, a, the comprehensive obstacles that that are uh, met each day here at Family Promise with the families we're working with. So I thought it was a very comprehensive report and really looked at, at the holistic picture of the problems of getting rehoused. So thank you very much. Mr. Chair. Yeah, okay, Thomas. Thomas Howell, Lawrence Board of Realtors Representative. And I agree with both of those comments. It feels to me like that board did a very good job, very comprehensive in looking at all of these issues around challenges. However, our board, and we have been discussing this for quite a while as well, is specifically focused on, uh, on the use of vouchers within, to, to keep affordable housing in, in uh, available. I, I do not uh, in any way say that those the other questions regarding this are invalid, but I think our board specifically is concerned about the use of the discrimination against the use of vouchers. Thank you, Thomas. Mr. Chairman, if I yeah. may clarify my earlier comment, uh, Ron Gacious, Chairman, uh, Chamber Representative, um, I have no objection to a comprehensive ordinance. I support a comprehensive ordinance. I think the work that's been done by Katie and the Human uh, Resources uh, Committee is excellent, but I haven't had a chance to read the 400 pages submitted, and I'm not comfortable 
voting in support of anything if I haven't been adequately backgrounded. And a 15 minute presentation is not adequate for me to feel uh, properly briefed on these issues. I specifically have objection to telling a property owner that unless they accept pets, they can't do business in the city of Lawrence. And I don't think that's quite what this proposal does, but I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I, you know, uh, the, the issues of uh, survivor status, I support inclusion of all of uh, the prohibitions on exclusion for survivor status, but we're just about to really get in every landlord's business. And uh, we're gonna get a lot of pushback. And I'd like to keep the pushback as narrow as possible so that we can deal with the most substantive and impactful issues. If renters choose to pick up pets someplace and then they can't find housing for them, then it's the pets that lose the housing, not necessarily the renter. And that's a choice they make. And I, I, I'm, I'm just not comfortable with the ordinance getting into that issue in the manner in which it's been approached here. Uh, most of the rest of the substantive stuff I've heard, I'm fully supportive of, but uh, I, I haven't read all the materials. I'll do that in advance of the next meeting, if you'd like, or we can be um, more narrow with our intentions here and I'll be fully supportive. Thank you, Ron. Shannon, I think you're, then I'll get to you, Trent, here in just a minute. And I, I think you mean Shannon Nowry with the Housing Authority? Yes, yes. Um, so um, I agree that these are all uh, issues that affect housing. I would like to specifically state that HUD has some very specific requirements on uh, meth and some other things and whatever the language ends up being, uh, from the housing authority's perspective, and as the body that issues most of the vouchers in town, I need it to mirror, I, I, I can't have a competing rule. Um, and so as long as, uh, Katie, I think you're very well aware of that, that I mean, there are some real prohibitions that HUD has enacted for meth and some different things that we just can't have a competing issue with. Uh, this is Katie Barnett, respectfully. I have the application, and if you guys would like to see it, it essentially has that language in it. I, I didn't mean to um, exclude that. Anything that this application, anything that HUD excludes, this application would exclude, um, and a few other things. So, yeah, again, I'll, I, I can either share my screen or share it with the board at a later date. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Trent, I think you're next. Uh, yeah, it's Trent Santino, Lawrence Home Builders representative. Uh, I just wanted to ask a couple questions to clarify. First, I want to say thank you to Katie and all the members that put together this report. It's a lot of um, compelling and interesting data, a lot of stuff to sift through. Um, what I kind of keyed, keyed in on was uh, the memorandum for the city of Lawrence. It's page 372. And I guess my clarification would be to that is essentially number two item on that page says, can the city consider an ordinance mandating any landlord except section eight vouchers? And it essentially responds with saying no, that that's illegal in the state of Kansas. So 
I guess the clarification I'm asking for, does this mean that they can't, ex like if there's a, a line item on an application that requires a certain amount of income that they have to accept section eight in that line item, but then later they don't have to accept section. I guess I'm, I'm confused on how exactly this will be applied. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, in my recollection, there was some um, different information provided um, at different times by the city attorney's office. And I think that Katie can probably speak to that more specifically. Um, the source of income non-discrimination ordinance is, um, does not move to rent control, which is preempted by the state of Kansas. And so um, in crafting the source of income non-discrimination um, components, we just needed to be careful that, you know, that didn't have any, that it didn't move to talking about discussing or limiting rent in any way, um, which is what is preempted in the state of Kansas. The source of income non-discrimination specifically is not preempted in Kansas. And I, uh, Katie and I spoke about that briefly on Friday. So I'm not sure, Katie, if you have any more that you'd like to say about that. This is Katie Barnett. Um, yes, the the city is the city attorney's office did uh, explore this issue pretty significantly. Um, I'm not really sure where the confusion lies, and I'm happy to uh, get something in writing, or uh, perhaps this board could request in writing from the city attorney's office um, their legal opinion. But this this ordinance, as written um, and based on the source of income language and other ordinances across the country, if the city uh, of Lawrence were to adopt it, there's this does not move into rent control. There's there's no language here that it does. Um, in my discussions with the city attorneys in other cities, um, both in Kansas and in um, uh, New York, this issue has come up and source of income just doesn't cross over so long as it's written in a way that doesn't try to control the dollar amount of rent. Okay, but in layman's terms, it would force them to accept vouchers as acceptable payment, though they couldn't deny somebody solely on those grounds. This is Katie Barnett. That's correct. Thank you. The Shannon Reed Douglas County Commission. I think I would say, in from my perspective, it's fair to say that they can't be denied solely on that, but it does not in any way functional way force any landlords to take it because i mean ultimately it, unless they only have one applicant for a unit or only applicants that are holding vouchers they're still going to have their choice of tenants if you will based on whatever the screening criteria is so from a practical standpoint i mean i'm really excited about this moving forward and hopeful that um it's successful and becomes a part of city code. And also the reality of it is that we have um, such low vacancy in the city of Lawrence um, for rental units and such a high number of tenants in need um, that 
I don't know how big the impact will necessarily be in reality, quite frankly, if so long as every landlord has a list of their choice of tenants um, and it's not the sole reason for discrimination, um, you know, I don't know how big the impact will be. That's my pessimistic view of it, which doesn't mean that I don't support it. I just think that it's important to point out that it um, it does not force property owner or landlord's hand, um, if you will. Thank you, Shannon. I Sorry, I see other people had their hands raised and I didn't notice that before. I apologize for yeah. jumping in, Christina and Edith. Yeah. I think that's a good point, Shannon. And Edith, I'll get to you here in just a second. Uh, and I think in the report, you know, I think the increases in the uh, actual rental rates were in the single digits, maybe one in the double digits in cities that were studied. So I think your your thought there has proven out in other cities that have enacted this. So Edith, uh, turn it over to you. And then Christine, I'll get to you right after that. Uh, yes, Edith Duffy, um, member at large. And I too wanna first of all, thank you for the uh, incredible amount of work and the history and information you've given us. I think it is excellent. And I am in support of this uh, with the concern about pets as well. And I, I do uh, think that there was the, um, the statement that in if you are receiving any Douglas County resources, then you could not deny, you had to allow pets. However, if you are providing, uh, if you are a providing uh, or accepting a voucher, that means you are receiving Douglas County resources. And there could be a substantial reason that you did not wanna accept a pet, like allergies. Um, like um, I have severe allergies uh, to pets or dogs or cats or anything like that. But uh, we have a rental unit and would love to support a voucher, a person with a voucher. But if that meant I had to support, uh, welcome a pet, could not do it. So those two things could be could be creating um, a difficulty and um, could have an unexpected consequence when we do something like that. Uh, I, I just really want to raise that 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 could really be working against us. Thank you, Christina. Attempting to unmute here. Hi, uh, Christina Gentry, a member who has or who uh, is currently receiving uh, Section 8 vouchers. Um, I'm speaking now because I'm very excited about the movement on, on this subject. I think I've spoken to it a couple of times, not with the um, support that has been uh, with this group here uh, that is allowed to have all this information. And and Ron, if you do have a chance, I recommend you read in some of the literature, especially the, um, the pilot study of landlord acceptance of housing choice vouchers. It's in that 388 page that was sent out with our uh, agenda. Um, but I'm going to take a little, I mean, I have to speak on this because I'm a person who the lived experience, I feel like I'd be remiss not to, um, and speak on the the, the really the, the applicant screening criteria um, and the process by which um, someone with a voucher in hand um, feels even with this accreditation that has been given and this real impact of a life-changing opportunity to have a voucher in hand and to have a way to support your family and have an opportunity to, to get housing and be approved by HUD, which is in itself a very extensive screening process. But I think a couple of us have that experience and know that. 
Um, you can go through appeals as also as an individual uh, to get there, to get this this voucher. And, and I'm speaking my personal experience here, um, but having that voucher in hand and then also feeling a little bit um, polarized by some of the screening that actually went, took place when I was looking for homes for my family. Um, this was years ago. And um, I just wanted to speak on the issue of the, the human impact of um, having an opportunity to pay for rent and then having uh, being denied basically, and you know that in your heart, you can't really understand the real issue, but it's a discrimination factor that comes into play when you can, um, and I'm having like a personal, uh, like I think I'm having a personal time right now, just kind of relenting or, or uh, going through my experience right now, speaking on it. So forgive me for that. Um, but I'm thinking about the families, um, and I understand that the, we have we have um, issues here that are inclusive of 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 things that are like pivotal to having a family, right? And, and including uh, pets, but. I'm going to focus on the children and the families, and I'm going to focus on my experience. And with absolute um, confidence, I can say that there was discrimination um, that was based upon my my having a, a a voucher and the size of my family, and me being a single parent. And then also, we do understand that there is real discrimination that happens and takes place in Lawrence Douglas County. So we're talking about also criminal history. And I, I think I'm over all over the place. I'm hoping you guys are following me. But we're talking about discrimination too and any criminal um, backgrounds that you may have. I don't know if you guys were able to go to a presentation that was given at the Lawrence Public Library, but in this presentation recently, there was a community review talking about the police and the impact of the um, stops and seizures and the police stops on in Douglas County. And we have an enormous, um, enormous amount of data that proves that black people get pulled over um, more times than people in our community. So with that, I think that criminal aspect and, and being seen as a criminal, maybe being walking around and seen as someone um, who there's real bias in that. I mean, that's, that's this is a reality. There's real bias in people who have vouchers to some landlords who really don't understand that there are issues that uh, prevent people from succeeding in a way that would, um, I think that they could support. And we're looking at landlords being affected. Uh, I can't tell you um, the process that I went through was quite, it was it was a little demeaning at first. And, and I kind of had to, to section, like go through that with my family, but I own my own home now. And I don't know if, if that's a, a real, um, reason to really support this because I think had I not had the opportunity to get my family in a place, I wouldn't have the opportunity to understand the things that I can sit back and really look at now. And as a person receiving Section 8 voucher, um, there's real there was real barriers uh, to to my home placement and my family. So I if and anything, I would hope to prevent that from happening to any other families in the future. Um, and so I'm in full support of, of writing a letter of recommendation and whatever we can do as a board. Um, we can have more discussions on what that means, but I really want to place a human uh, aspect on this and how this is a, a very, very pivotal part of our discussion that could make a real difference, I think, moving forward. Thank you, Christina. Shannon? 
Yeah, um, I, I um, want to just echo what Christina was saying, and I also would encourage us to be real, real thoughtful about, um, you know, the way you build wealth in this country is by being able to buy a home, and the and uh, the discrimination um, for being low income is a very real thing, and it's and we need to have the messaging that it's not human failure, that it's lack of opportunity. And I'd really like, the, um, I like this ordinance in the sense that we can start crafting the message about what the opportunity a voucher gives you um, or gives a family. And that I, you know, I, I mean, I, I have a pet, everybody has pets. A lot of people have pets, um, but um, and the, you know this is outside of of uh, my rural area. But I would not want to see something as port as important uh, as providing housing and opportunity for housing diluted or derailed because we are taking on a bunch of other things in this ordinance um, because. Uh, really, this is this is a critical piece of the opportunity to say we're going to ask no one to pay more than thirty percent of their income for their housing, so that they can provide other opportunities for their families. And I really think that's the message here, and that we need to think about making that message to all these landlords. That that's the message here is that is that the point of this is that opportunity. Thank you, Shannon. This is Monte Sokup, Chair. Um, listening to all these comments, I think there's a you know overwhelming support for uh, maybe the universal screening process and uh, you know the protection of the class as income, I guess, or a source of income. Um, I have a little trepidation over the pet friendly. Uh, program and my biggest concern is that we have unintended consequences of that kind of language that would essentially if you're going to require everyone that accepts a voucher to accept pets you're going to see I think the rent go up because ultimately the you know the fear of the landlord with a pet is that something gets destroyed and they have a tremendous turnover cost and you know uh, a license fee is not going to change that people i mean I, I don't think a 50 dollars license fee compared to 15 dollars is not gonna you know in the scope of things a landlord's gonna pay that and opt out so i don't think we've accomplished you know what the current language hasn't probably accomplished uh forcing anybody to take pets um but i think you may see the rents of if they are at some point forced all the rents will go up because you'll know you have that obligation to accept a pet uh, so I, th I just think we got to be really careful with that language. I'm not I'm not there on the pet language, but I think I am on the other, uh, most of the other items. So, uh, are there other comments? Okay, so I have a. I'm going to propose something, maybe, Mr. Chair. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, just wanted to uh, check and see if there's public comment on the item. Okay. I'm not sure if there is, but. Uh, Okay, do we have public comment on the item? Okay, great. 
Hi, board members. My name is Gabby Sprague. I'm the Human Services Program Manager, also on the team that worked with Katie on a lot of these uh, recommendations to the law. I just wanted to share a couple statistics and uh, speak to some of the points that you all have brought up. Um, so there are currently 264 landlords that work with the Housing Authority on the Section 8 voucher program, uh, but we have 2,012 um, owners with rental licenses here in the Douglas County, uh, just in Lawrence. Um, it's a very small percentage of the um, landlords who have rental uh, licenses that actually uh, work with the Housing Authority. Um, Given this, I think that this uh, the proposed changes would be really beneficial um, to getting more people housed. I also know that the Housing Authority has spent uh, quite a bit of money to incentivize landlords to work with this program, uh, $81,000 uh, over the past year and two-ish months, I think. Um, to the benefit of 39 households getting housed, uh, we have they work to provide um, more more than seven or 70 units to the HCV or the Housing Choice Voucher Program participants and 10 new landlords to the Housing Authority. Uh, so we've been working, or uh, the Housing Authority has been working really hard to get more people onto this program. Um, I would also say that. Uh, Katie shared the statistic that um, the rental availability list that the Housing Stabilization Collaborative has put out over the course of the last two-ish years, 80% um, of the landlord's survey do not accept vouchers. Um, you already saw that in the presentation. Um, I would also say that just personally, I've seen landlords due to the Kansas Emergency Rental Assistance Program and also the Shared Housing Stabilization Collaborative Rent and Utility Assistance Program that many landlords have um, gone a little bit uh, and stopped working with the program as much as I would like. Um, it's not been a majority. Uh, however, I've seen in rental assistance applications, um, have you accepted rental assistance in the past? I think just culturally, we need a shift in our community um, to being being more accepting of rental assistance, knowing that um, many of the, we want affordable housing and safe housing for all people in our community. Um, I also wanna speak a little bit to um, Shannon's point about it not being influenced, the proposed changes not being influential. I do think that if we have these changes now, it encourages future property developers and rental managers to recognize that our community is uh, meant to be safe and welcoming to all people. Um, so thus, if we even if we don't have, um, uh, you know, immediate changes to um, housing more people in the future, it sets our community up for more success in housing folks. Uh, thank you all. Thank you, Ed. All right, are there any other public comments? Thank you. I'm James Dunn. I'm a private sector housing provider, and I also, I guess I'm a minority, according to what Gabby said, I, am, I serve Section 8 folks. And I wanted to make a comment about the pet situation. One of the things that concerns me is about pets is you, it seems like you'd have to get the veterinarians on board with this because I've learned from, because I do rent to folks with have pets, but they many times when the pet becomes ill, the tenant's not in a position to take that pet to the vet. And I've had to pay a few vet bills myself because I said, we can't wait till the first of the month. The little animal can't wait that long because they're ill now. So I have concerns about that little piece of, uh, of pets. If we're gonna take care of them, we have to take care of the pet too, not just the tenant. And I have, and I also have a little concern. One concern I have is using 
in the presentation that was made earlier, which is very impressive. They're using California, Minnesota, and Illinois as examples of what we should be doing in Lawrence. And I'm not sure that I hear the best things coming out of all those states. And so that concerns me as well. And thank you for all your work that you're doing here. And I think I need to be much more involved after I've been at this meeting there's a lot more things that are going on here that I didn't realize was happening until now, but I appreciate you having this public meeting. Thank you. Thank you, James. All right. Any other comments? Well, what I was going to propose was that uh, potentially have staff draft a letter of recommendation that we could actually react to and edit at a future meeting. I, I'm not sure if that works with the timeline that this letter would be needed, but um, I feel like if we had the language of the letter that we could manipulate that to a point that this body is comfortable uh, writing that letter to the commission. Any Thoughts on Janet that. Lowry, Housing Authority. I second that motion. Okay. okay, so I would I didn't put that up as a motion, but uh, a recommendation uh, that we basically table this item until we would have a letter to kind of, you know, maybe the letter could come out mid month or something, and then we could review it and review it against the 400 page document that was provided and we could all get a comfort level with what we what this board's actually recommending instead of just a carte blanche uh, recommendation. Um, this is Christina Gentry, um, member who has received actually this is a long title, um, but yes, um, I'm wondering if too, if there is a timeline uh, that the group maybe wanted to present to the city commission. And if so, um, do we maybe think about having a special meeting if that time is going mm -hmm. to conflict? I'm thinking maybe October would be something that, that this group wants to push to the commission, but I'm not sure of the dates exactly. Maybe Gabby or maybe um, someone else could, could tell me the dates that they want to uh, bring this to commission to discuss. Uh, this is Katie Barnett. Just uh, as the chair of the Human Relations Commission, I can tell you that I will be calling a special meeting um, in the next week or so to have the Human Relations Commission eyes on this one last time before we move to support um, and vote it out of our commission. Uh, the timeline is uh, essentially trying to get this done before winter. Um, it is really important that we expand access to housing before it gets really cold. So we are certainly hoping to get this done by Thanksgiving because, you know, once Thanksgiving hits, like it's hit and miss with commission meetings and getting everyone present and um, it can be really difficult. So really hoping to get this done before then. Thank you, Katie. That to me, that sounds like if we address this and could make a recommendation out of out of our next meeting in October, we would be in line with Katie's. Uh, you know, we'd be this. You could it could hit the second city commission meeting in October, probably. I'm I'm not looking at the dates, but just round numbers. Is that? Okay. 
All right, then if there are no objections to my suggestion, we'll move forward in that manner. Um, and end uh, up final comment. And then, and then, uh, yeah, I'll take any other comments on, uh, oh, Ron has his hand up. <laughs> I'm sitting next here to Ron. <laughs> Look at him. Mr. Chairman, Ron Gacious, mm -hmm. Chamber Representative. Um, Katie, I'm an attorney too, but I don't practice in this field either. But the area of concern I have was in your explanation of the penalties for violation of the ordinance would result in non-renewal of the landlord's rental license. And I, I am concerned that there's a body of law that um, asks for some kind of equity in the penalties and and the violations and it occurs to me that you know as uh the chairman alluded earlier we've got sam we've got a couple of landlords with several hundred units and i i just don't i just don't see how a single violation is going to be able to effectively work with our landlord community if they think the penalty for a single violation is uh, suspension of the uh, uh, renewal license. I know that you explained that there would be discretion on the part of the planning commission of whether or not to uh, assert the, um, the non-renewal. Um, I'm not comfortable with that discretion. Uh, you're your uh, feature is to me a flaw. Uh, I think you need a very clearly enumerated description of what's in compliance and what's in violation. I don't think you want uh, city staff to be put in a position of having to subjectively determine on a case-by-case -case basis uh, what constitutes a violation that's so egregious that um, uh, it warrants non-renewal of the license. If if there's something that warrants non-renewal of the license, we ought to be able to clearly describe it instead of leaving it to the subjective determination of planning commission staff. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Uh, so, uh, Katie, did you want to respond to that? I, because what I heard when uh, when I asked my question was that there was a whole another section on process for uh, if there is a violation. So, um, I don't, I don't know. Sure, this is this is Katie Barnett. Sure. So, there are. Um, in Article 13, it describes the grounds for non-renewal, one of those grounds being a substantiated finding of a violation of Chapter 10. So there's a process, a complaint is lodged um, in Chapter 10, it's investigated by the prosecutor's office. Um, it either goes to conciliation, um, as with all the civil rights discrimination, it goes to, to conciliation. It go, which gives them an opportunity to correct before um, they're penalized. Um, and it also could go through uh, an administrative hearing and or it could go to uh, civil litigation. And so, uh, you know, when our team talked about this, when I talked about this with other cities, it was recommended that we don't outline how many violations it would take for someone to get uh, a non-renewal 
Um, and so if that's something that this board would like to see, I can certainly go through and revise that. I did want to reiterate that um, there is, a, I think what we're finding is there are landlords who are violating this Article 13 and they're just paying the penalty. You know, like again, when you park on mass, you just pay your $10 ticket over and over and over and over again, but it doesn't stop the behavior. Only this time we're not talking about parking tickets. We're talking about discrimination of human beings and keeping people unhoused. And so when the, the group, when I talked to other attorneys and when the group talked about what will we do to truly enforce this, it wasn't to allow landlords to continue to violate this and continue to discriminate and simply pay a municipal fine, which is what the other penalty is. So there's not just non-renewal, there's also a municipal offense penalty. And so this, this non-renewal non is, is really the, the teeth behind this ordinance. And, and certainly I am willing to, to tweak the language to say, what all does that mean? I am totally open again. You know, this is not my area of expertise. This is yours. And so if you have something you would like to, to share with me and something that this board would like to see, I'm more than happy to make that change. What I'm hearing, though, from other attorneys, advocates, and subject matter experts is we cannot continue to allow landlords to violate Article 13 and simply pay a fine. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. And I think that, at least from my perspective my that was my concern we need something that hurts but is not fatal <laughs> when you're in violation of this so that it is impactful and i think that's the main thing that was my concern anyway mr chair yeah before we move on from this item i just um would like some clarity on the letter of support please um so i heard um no, I can't find it. A letter of support um, that the AHAB could react to. Um, and I've heard um, different members give different positions on what might be acceptable. And so can yeah. you provide some guidance on the scope of? Yeah, I think the letter should uh, address everything that's being recommended. And then at the next meeting week, if we have a problem with something, we can pull it out and Edit. That's what I, I think it should re recommend. Talk about the entire recommendation from uh, the Human Relations Committee. Um, so and we'll edit it from there is what I'm thinking. So then you're interested in a letter of support for all of the changes outlined specifically, and then the AHAB can go through and say, no, we don't support this. Yes, we support this. Okay, or we can we can. Yeah, or we can say that we support it at some level or whatever, you know, or we can address the concerns we have. Okay. I think something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think it, I think the draft letter needs to include all of the recommendations so we can react to that at the next meeting. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Um, one last call for comments, and then we're going to move on to the next item. All right. Seeing none, we're going to thank you, everyone. That was. Uh, really good discussion and a wonderful presentation uh, of the materials. So uh, let me see here. Where are we? Uh, discuss potential affordable housing advisory board member conflict of interest issues and consider recommendation on membership to the city commission. So um, after our last meeting, uh, we had uh, uh, 
Ron sent an email out and uh, basically brought up the concern about uh, conflicts of interest uh, on specific items that we uh, talk about here at the at uh, Affordable Housing Advisory Board and the fact that we have some members that uh, also are in a position where they compete uh, for and make application for the funds that we allocate. And um, I know that, uh, you know, we typically recuse those individuals if they have uh, have items that we're considering. Um, but I think uh, the concern is that uh, the ability to impact um, impact the way decisions are made and policies that this board uh, puts in place, uh, there's a potential for a, a conflict there as well. Um, so the the staff put together a memorandum of several of I think four options uh, that are available to us, and I know we've discussed this in the past, but uh, because it's been brought up again, we need to, I think we need to run through uh, those options uh, at some point. But before we do that, I'm going to bring up uh, open the floor or other people's comments on this uh, agenda item. Mm. And then at, at when we have, after we've had some comments, we'll go through, we could talk through options and decide if this board wants to do, uh, how, how we want to react to that. Go ahead, Rebecca. Thank you, Chairman. Um, I think the discussion on kind of clarifying conflict of interest and what is expected on that is really important. So, um, but I do want to um, respond to the way in which this has been brought to the board. Um, a foundation of serving on this board should be that we treat one another with respect. Reasonable people can differ if it is done respectfully and addresses the issues without personal attacks. Mr. Geisha's letter of July 13th and his reply to all, which the city claims was not a reply to all, follow-up email violates this tenant. The undersigned requests that Mr. Geisha's be censored for by Ahab for his knowing violence of the Kansas Open Meetings Act and for treating other members of the body disrespectfully. End of quote. This was the opening paragraph to a letter that Shannon Ori, Erica Zimmerman, Dana Ortiz, and myself signed and sent to the city in response to Mr. Geisha's letter being on the agenda. Ironically, and I understand because we did not respond to the assumed conflict of interest attack and factual inaccuracies in his letter, we did not create a coma violation. And therefore, the city is not going to respond to any violation or provide any censoring, which I am in complete agreement with. I understand that. However, that does not address the issue that accusations can, can be emailed out against other board members and they cannot respond. Our letter requesting censure was a way to bring to light the idea that we have no complaint with differences of opinion, but all of those questions could have been brought up without being personal or hostile or blaming other agencies. I do not want to see that happen to any other members of uh, or agencies again. I want to continue to work with Mr. Gashes. I I respect him and I think he is a true advocate for affordable housing, but arguments need to be made with facts and evidence or need to be brought up in a way that can be responded to in a conversation. So again, the, there was not a coma violation, but we should not be able to 
tell people suggest that other people have done things with conflict of interest and other intentions and not allow them to respond. So I appreciate you all bringing this up at this meeting and understand that is my, our of our area, our chance to respond. However, it's been sitting out there for over a month and that does not feel good. It feels like, I feel very much like we have been silenced and unable to, to respond. Um, so in that, to that end, I would like to share the following. Conflict of interest. This is defined very specifically as all board members shall be by abstention refrain from participating in the decision-making process, including discussing and voting on any item for which he or she, his or her employer, or the entity which he or she representing appears before the board and would receive direct financial benefit if the item was to be approved by the governing body. So in the way that conflict of interest is written, I suggest that none of the nonprofits that were accused of conflict of interest violated that, uh, that were targeted by the letter. Um, we would not receive direct financial, financial incentive or benefit um, in any way from the vote. Second, even if considering the assumption that representatives of not-for-profit agencies are allowed to vote against funding of a for-profit project available now so that they will have access to more funding for their own projects in the future, assumes intentions that were not there and were not asked about. Tenants to homeowners is not applying for any funds this round and had no plans at the time of this vote. I believe Shannon also stated that before her vote. I could have stated that more specifically, but I honestly did not even think of it because we did not vote against funding the project. We voted that that project be brought in with all the other funding requests in a mere two months and be compared to everything. So I, again, you know, respectfully disagree that there was any financial incentive or that that we would essentially ensure our fund or our projects would be funded. There's no there's no assurance of that in any way. Um, I call on the advisory board now to clarify how potential conflict of interest would be determined in any future out of cycle round and agree that this should be clarified in a conversation, but not as an accusation that couldn't be responded to. Secondly, our quote unquote, there is a bias for for profits that must end. Where is the evidence of bias against for-profits? We have only had one other out-of-cycle vote for a for-profit project, and I moved to vote for it. All the other nonprofits did too. This time, for context, I had several other factors I was considering and mentioned those to the group. It was not the middle of the year, like the other request out-of-cycle, but two months before the application process was expected for all applicants. The tax credit process had not been decided, so no one, not even the applicant, could know if trust fund allocation was absolutely necessary or would even be a factor that would ensure this project would get funded. In fact, this particular person did not receive tax credits for his Lawrence project, but another project did, one that I was aware was going to apply for these funds. 
So again, if we had given, my vote was to make sure that all tax credit projects, all for-profit projects that were would possibly be considered were who were prepared to apply for our published schedule would have a chance, a fair chance to be considered. I think the for-profit developer who did receive tax credit projects or tax credit funding for a project in Lawrence this year would be extremely frustrated with us handing the majority of the allocation out of cycle two months before to another person who did not even receive the tax credit financing. I agree we need to look at our schedule to work with tax credit developers because I am for every tax credit project, but this was an argument against fairness in process for all tax credit projects. Finally, TTH did request money out of cycle, and I'm addressing an accusation that was made in a second letter, reply to all. But there are significant details that were not stated correctly. I was actually the one who brought this up when I was speaking outside of the con coma context, because we can't for mis with Mr. Gashas, and reminded him of this out of cycle request to be transparent and acknowledge the issues that could come up. I stated these differences and hope to add context to what he took as a hypocrisy so we could present our arguments fairly. These differences included that it was not so near to the scheduled round. We asked for it in February, not August before the September deadline. And it, most importantly, it requested only 200,000, not 350,000 as stated in the letter, which was left over by the previous allocation that we did not allocate or spent. So the big difference is it was not asking for funds that were expected to be available in the next round. TTH would not, and in the future will never request money from a future allocation as I and we do not think that is fair. So another part of my vote on this one was because it would take half of the allocation away two months before we would get all other applications. And stating that TTH had previously done this was erroneous. I have no complaint with having a discussion about conflict of interest clarifications as we move forward and evolve. If the board decides that having affordable housing nonprofit leadership on this board is not worth addressing these issues, I think we would lose a lot of our ability to guide our affordable housing goals and that recusing ourselves when and if we have projects in the queue makes perfect sense. And we can update this idea out of cycle. How do we assess who has a potential conflict of interest that had never been discussed before? And again, the intention of ours was not to be untransparent. I do, and that none of us are applying that I know of. You guys speak up if you're not, but Shannon and I are not applying this round and knew that when we voted. I ask, I do not think we should be allowed to attack each other. And I ask all my colleagues to agree to decorum and transparent conversation moving forward. I do not think one-sided emails that go out to everyone but cannot be responded to by everyone because of coma should be the way we communicate with each other. So this I'm presenting to you in person in a discussion and I apologize. I know we're at the end getting close to the end of time, but I wanted that on the record in this meeting and I'm happy to continue discussion in our next meeting as well. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Anyone else want to comment on this? 
All right. I'll be glad to respond. Ron, if you want to respond, respond. Um, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Rebecca, thank you for your honest and candid uh, comments. Uh, I have great respect for the four agency leaders that are on this uh, advisory board. Um, my interest is being able to tell the public in four more years when it comes time to extend our 10-year sales tax earmark in support of the Affordable Housing Trust Fund that we've done an outstanding job with their funds. My concern is about transparency, the use of the funds, and keeping the public's support and confidence in the decision-making that uh, we provide and the recommendations we provide to the City Commission. I think we have conflict of interest uh, issues. I have never seen an advisory board in my 40 years of working with state and local government, I've never seen an advisory board populated by representatives who ultimately compete for funds made available by, by the board that allows those participants to set the specifications in the RFP or the NOFA um, and to make direct recommendations uh, on what the the um, allocation of funds should be. And I think it raises wor worrisome issues for us about conflicts of interest, not only in um, uh, during the times in which we are distributing the dollars that are in the pool, but also in those decision-making uh, in regards to what should be a component of the notice of funding availability, funded funding opportunity, the NOFA. Uh, the city ethics code references the Kansas statutes. If you look to the Kansas statutes and the attorney general's opinions that interpret them, and I spent quite a bit of time on that the week following your July 9th meeting, you'll see that there are very broad applications of the prohibition against conflict of interest in the attorney general's opinions because the interpretations are provided to assure the public that there are no conflicts of interest, not to narrowly define the conflict of interest so as to avoid restrictions on the participants, but to broadly interpret the conflict of interest uh, uh, definition to assure the public that conflicts of interest are avoided. I don't think we're doing that. Uh, I apologize for some of the language in uh, that um, uh, that email. I was still excited on Wednesday after having viewed the videotape on Tuesday, and I saw it again Wednesday morning. Uh, I thought the decision was wrong. I thought, I believe that the explanation of why it's okay to dip money out of the pool in February, but it's not in August, is um, not a substantive argument. Uh, the money that uh, had been left over from the prior funding year would have been available for this November's pool if we hadn't allocated it in February, just as the money that was requested in July would have been available for the November pool uh, if not allocated, and it wasn't. Um, I think the distinction between um, uh, so something that I thought um, the applicant in July made a point of that was important to me was that he said 
he thought he could get his building started, his construction started this fall. Now, I know there are doubters of that. I haven't heard anyone, I haven't heard anyone say out loud that's BS, but we funded an allocation in February because of urgency. There was a lot available that was maybe not going to be available later. Well, to me, having the opportunity for 48 units uh, that could strike ground this fall, that's a sense of urgency. We had just heard the month before that we had 100 people walking around the streets of Lawrence with a voucher, and they can't find a spot to live in. I mean, we that, that will accept the voucher. We either have a sense of urgency and press forward relentlessly at every opportunity, or we don't. Um, and and I, I'm, I am uncomfortable with, the people have heard me make this comment before, I'm uncomfortable with our notice of funding opportunity. I think it is a format that reflects a bias in support of not-for-profit uh, providers. It is not an instrument that for-profit providers respond to. They respond to RFPs. The If, if we want to get for-profit providers more deeply engaged in solutions to affordable housing, I believe we need to change our approach. I look forward to working um, as we address these issues in the future. Mr. Chair, this is Leah Rufflin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, just want to note that there's four minutes left of the scheduled meeting, and I see that there are two comments already with hands up. So I'm wondering if the board would... How, how the board would like to handle the time boundary. Uh, well, I think, okay, this is Monte Sokup Chair. I think I'd like to have uh, take these two comments and we may ultimately have to table this issue to the next meeting or extend the meeting, one of the two. And I don't know what everybody's schedule is like to extend the meeting, but um, so let's get these two comments and Edith and Shannon, if you can try to be as brief as you can, we'll go that way, but just- Mr. Chair. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how we're going to be able to get in the rest of the agenda and listen to these comments without an extension. So I would move that we extend the meeting to 1.15 p.m. And therefore have a shorter limit on it than if we were to go any further than that. Right. Maybe enable us to go forward. All right. Do we, I'm asking staff, do we have to vote on that? Do we need to vote on that to extend the meeting 15 minutes? Okay. So do I have a second? For that, I have a motion on the floor. Do I have a second to extend the meeting till 1.15? Okay, I am not seeing a second. So I guess uh, I'm not up on my rules of Roberts, well, but I think that there was no fails, it dies. It dies, it. okay. So it dies for lack of second. I'm gonna turn it over to Edith. We're gonna try to get in those few comments and then we're gonna close out the meeting. Edith, you're on mute. I'm going to speak briefly because I was going to say I have a hard stop. Um, I, I, I wanted to say I, uh, I had some concerns about the letter, but I do want to say I have long been concerned about conflict of interest. While I have tremendous respect for everyone on this board and know that people recuse themselves, but there's a number, there's something about informal power. And uh, when you speak, uh, 
and support. When you speak, even in a meeting, you have in, you have tremendous power. Uh, and when we shape uh, the the forms and how we vote, I mean, not when we vote, but when we shape uh, uh, policies or when we shape um, the application, your opinions, you have informal power, tremendous power. And that matters even more sometimes than the vote. So I have been concerned about the um, conflict of interest, perhaps not the stated conflict, the low level conflict of interest. Thank you, Edith. Shannon, we got a couple minutes. Yeah, so um, I, I noticed that Mr. Gacious did not address his disrespectful tone to the rest of us. Um, and the fact that he basically made independent determinations that really are the city commissions to make. I respect what Edith just said, and I think that is a very valid point, and I would be happy to discuss that type of thing, but the complete disrespectful tone and telling all the rest of the board members, by the way, many other people besides the four nonprofits voted against that. And the idea that any one member thinks they can dictate what the correct answer is to the rest of us is downright offensive. Secondly, I would ask that we request staff to do an evaluation of the number of built units and the time periods that they will remain affordable that we have funded. Um, because I'm gonna, I, I, I mean, I'm gonna say we far outweigh the for-profit. And if you take Mr. Gacious's comments, He's a chamber board member, right? He's the chamber rep. So he's representing for-profit. We have certain people who represent real estate and or builders also have a different kind of interest, a specific interest. And the city commission created this board for all of those purposes. None of the for not-for-profits make money off of these deals. We do not. We do not personally make money, and and that real distinction needs to be brought out. And so those are my comments. I mean, I obviously, um, you know, if Mr. Gacious didn't know it before, he knows it now that he has really damaged his relationship with the four of us um, who work in this field from his letter. And I, I do not feel that you have addressed that specific piece that you've really hurt this ability, the ability of this board to work together. Thank you, Shannon. Okay, with that, I am going to close this discussion. Um, the remaining items, I think I need, uh, we will need to table to the next meeting, as well as the conclusion of this item. Uh, at the next meeting, we'll need to bring that up. Um, Chair, I'll make a motion if you're ready. Yeah, I'm ready for a motion for that. This is Jan Reed, Douglas County Commission. I move that we um, defer the rest of item five um, and all of item six, as well as sections um, 
section D for our next AHAB meeting on October 10th. I would second that motion. Okay, so we have a, a motion and a second on the floor. Any comment on that? Okay, uh, I'm gonna call the roll. Uh, Rebecca Buford? Yes. Sharon, Sarah Waters? Yes. Christina Gentry? Yes. Thomas Allen? Thomas may have had to leave. Erica Zimmerman? Yes. Dana Ortiz? Yes. Shannon Aury? Yes. Ron Gacious? Yes. Edith Guffey? I think Edith had to leave as well. Thomas Howe? Yes. Monty Sokup? Yes. Trent Santee? Yes. Shannon Reed? Yes. Motion passes 11-0. Uh, with that, uh, I think last time I was told I do not need a motion to adjourn, that we can just adjourn. Is that correct? All right, we're adjourned. Thank you. Sure.